Ezra 3. If you want to use a Blue Pew Bible, you can find on page 390. As we are continuing our series in this book of Ezra that we began last week. Last week we covered chapters 1 and 2. And we were introduced into this book and this story of a God who is working through difficult times and difficult moments by um, primarily reminding his people of his promises and then bringing about a renewed vision of future hope. And so where we left off in chapter 2 last week, uh, after King Cyrus of Persia gave the decree as he was stirred up by the Lord to send the people of God who had been in exile for 70 years to send them back to their promised land, we kind of saw the roll call of 42,000 and over 42,000 people preparing to leave. Preparing to leave Babylonia, head back to Jerusalem, and that's where we're going to be picking things up in chapter 3. But I also mentioned last week that the Old Testament books, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, in many of the ancient manuscripts were one book. They were combined as one book in the Old Testament because, in short, both of these books describe a building project, and more specifically, a rebuilding project. And that they both tell the story of getting God's people returning from exile to rebuild and reestablish themselves in the land that God has given them. So this book of Ezra contains the rebuilding of a physical temple in Jerusalem. It, it, it's the house of the Lord as it is written. And that would be overseen primarily by a man named Zerubbabel that you'll see often throughout the first six chapters of Ezra. And then Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the city walls in Jerusalem, right? So to protect them and their rebuilt temple from enemies that would surround them. And that project will be overseen by a man named Nehemiah. But intertwined between both of those physical building projects is the rebuilding and restoring of the spiritual lives of God's people, both as individuals and as a corporate nation. And that would be overseen by Ezra. And I also said that Ezra, chapters just 1 through 6, takes place over approximately 80 years. So it might take you, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes to read those first six chapters, but you're spanning 80 years of history in that timeline, starting in 538 B.C. The man Ezra will be in the kind of second wave of exiles coming from Babylonia, uh, and we won't see him until chapter 7, and that will be in 458 B.C. So we saw last week... Decree goes out, 538 B.C. Ezra won't actually get to Jerusalem for 80 years. There's a good chance he was not even born by the time or when King Cyrus first made this decree. And then Nehemiah will come about 15 years after Ezra. So there's three waves. Zerubbabel's in the first wave. Ezra will be in the second wave. And then Nehemiah in the third wave of this building project And so I think there is historical benefit to just going through this book that we have found found and will continue to find of this kind of learning and being uh, affirmed of God's faithfulness in preserving his people through difficult times all throughout history. Like that will preach to us today of being reminded of how God has worked throughout history to protect and sustain his people. But that's not the only benefit I think we're going to find, especially this morning in Ezra 3. And that will, it will also illuminate what it means for a Christian to faithfully build and or rebuild a life in this world. 
So I want to ask two questions this morning. If, if you're not even the note-taking type, I would encourage you to maybe write down these two questions to not only ponder this morning, but even in the future. Um, first question, what are you building in life? It's kind of a surface-level question that ha- can have several answers. What are you building in life? When you wake up in each day, what's kind of top of your mind that you're seeking to build or rebuild? Uh, some, some common answers you might find is that you're, you're building a business. You're building a relationship with somebody, a friendship, a, a dating relationship, a marriage. You're, you're building a skill level. You're building a career. You're building a family. You're building an educational foundation, right? So they're kind of the same examples of things that you might be building in life. And, and here's the thing. When it comes to uh, building in 2021, uh, when it comes to what you might call an entrepreneurial spirit and opportunity, there has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur than today. So just out of curiosity, this is you know, kind of a quick hidden question. Raise your hand if you would say you have an entrepreneurial spirit. Like you don't have to be shy. Like you just feel like you like building things. You like kind of trying new things. Entrepreneurial spirit. Okay, there's four of you uh, in this entire room that are entrepreneurial spirit. We got some work to do. Uh, but here's the thing: to encourage you, if you want to be, there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur than today. Uh, Rochelle and I, you know, uh, it, when we before we had kids, we watched way more, but we still try to tune into Shark Tank every now and again. And that is the show of the entrepreneur, right? That somebody came across a problem in their life. They saw and researched, is there a solution to this problem? And if so, they buy it. And if not, they invent it and become a multimillionaire. I mean, apparently it's that easy. And, and, like, like, and, and how many times Rochelle and I, and Rochelle, this plagues her more than me, where she's like, I could have thought of that, right? Like that was just a normal person. And that's often what it is. You find this kind of nobody, like me, uh, living their life, and they're washing dishes, and they're like, oh my gosh, Scrub Daddy, multi-millionaire. Uh, and like, if you have not researched Scrub Daddy, it'll change your life. Um, <laughs> but think about the internet. You can literally do anything on the internet, or do anything and just film it, write about it, post it, gain a following, and then monetize it. Like, it seems to be that easy. Right? In the last five to seven years, just the word influencer has come into our vocabulary. To be an influencer is to make money on your social media posts. So a person or a company pays you to post and promote their product or their service, uh, and it's a sponsored post. In a survey done a couple years ago, um, 86%, and so almost 9 in every 10 of Gen Z and millennials said they would post sponsored content for money if they had the opportunity to. And nearly 54%, okay, this is a little scary, over half of Gen Z millennials would become an influencer as their full-time job if they were given the opportunity. But in order to be an influencer, you need a following, and you got to build a following somehow. And so the entrepreneurial spirit has taken a kind of a weird turn in the last you know, few years. But the underlying question has always been there across human history. What are you building in life? Everybody's life and, and the way you live your life gives the answer. A combination of, again, a company, relationship, skill, career, etc. That's the first question. Here's the second question, the deeper question. First is, what are you building in life? But second is, what kind of life are you building? Not what are you building in life, but what kind of life are you building? 
And what I'm getting at here is that the beneath the surface, everyone, no matter what they're doing in life, is seeking a meaningful life, purposeful, joyful, a life that's exciting, fulfilling, and especially for the believer, God-glorifying. So to the first question, you've got these three men, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They are building a temple, they're building city walls, and they're building a ministry. Very different. But to the second question, they were all building a life defined by God-glorifying worship. You've probably seen and heard the illustration of an iceberg in different contexts, uh, but you know, the, the fact that 10 to 20 percent of an iceberg is visible above the water, but 80 to 90 percent of an iceberg lies deeper beneath the surface. And so I had AJ put together a graphic for us that we'll put up on the screen. That uh, but, but above the surface, the top 10, 20%, we are all across the board in things that we're building. And that is a good thing, that we're not all seeking after the same thing. But beneath the surface, like what is actually motivating those things, what kind of life are you building is what people might not see, but it's very important to know what are you after, what kind of life are you building. God's people have been and always will be diverse in the things that are above the surface. But when it's right... God's people are united in the kind of lives they are building, the kind of lives that are defined by God-glorifying worship that will spark a revival for his namesake. And so I want to kind of see what are the, what are the aspects of building that kind of life that God wants us to build out of Ezra chapter 3. So let's get into the text. We're going to read starting uh, Ezra 3 verses 1 to the first half of 6. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feasts of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and all that the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. So what is needed to build the kind of God-glorifying life that God wants you to build? Ezra 3 is going to give us three things, starting with number one, a life of devotion, a life of full devotion. Um, We don't know, we're not told how much time elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, but again, the total tally of those that were returning in this first wave, over 42,000 people and all their possessions, I think it's safe to assume it took some time. To get that in place and travel the roughly 900 miles from Babylonia to Jerusalem. I always found that distance interesting uh, for us and our family because every summer we go to see Rochelle's family in Wisconsin and that's about 900, 950 miles away and it takes forever with four kids driving. I can't imagine 42,000 people and all their possessions walking 900 miles back 
to the capital, but it's safe to assume it took some time. And yet, within relatively short order of being back in the land, they prioritized the corporate gathering. Verse 1 said, as one man. They gathered as one man to build an altar and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So a few things for us to consider here. Um, First, I mean, they have this massive task ahead of them, right, to enter back into the land after being out of the land for 70 years. And the land they're getting back to, as we'll see more next week, was not empty. There were other nations that kind of moved right in, right? But they didn't see Israel go into exile 70 years ago and say, you know what, it would be appropriate if we just didn't go into that land. No, no, they went right into the land, right? Israel moves out, others move in. And now Israel is coming back in. That's a massive task now to how to reestablish themselves in the land that God has given them. Um, So again, there are a lot more serious implications in this discussion that we're going to hit on next week. But kind of a, this is kind of a weird illustration for me, but as, as I was thinking this, I can tell you the stage of life that I'm in. Uh, I see this play out every morning in our home. Because in September, uh, our oldest two kids, Caden and Brinley, went back to school for the first time in 18 months uh, because we homeschooled the whole year prior. And we also have two twins that are uh, two and a half years old. And all they know, if you know kind of sibling hierarchy in homes, they've always been told what they could play with, right? Very concrete rules, right? They have their own little system that kind of evades Rochelle and I, but the older two kind of control the younger two in the home. But now the older two, for the first time, are leaving every day. And I see this play out. They walk out the door and the twins turn around like they own the place. They have full uh, kind of Rights to go play with what they want, when they at, no toys are off limits, nobody's bossing them around. And then in the afternoon, things get awkward. <laughs> the older two kids come back home, and there's this face-off. Who has domain over this place? Again, much more serious side of that conversation next week, but Israel comes back after 70 years. It's a little awkward with the neighbors. And to the think about rebuilding and reestablishing themselves in the land, this to-do list is pretty large for Zerubbabel. He's kind of like the governor, overseer of this project, project manager, if you will. And yet, despite the stress of it all, despite that all of that had to get done, they prioritized the altar and sacrifice first. First things first. Verse 3 tells us that they did it, at least in part, because they were fearful of the foreign peoples in their lands. And so they're overwhelmed, enemies are surrounding them, and yet they prioritize the reestablishment of worship, of devoted worship before anything else. The text does not indicate that they were wrong to fear the peoples. Maybe there was good reason to fear the peoples. But it shows that in that fear... They pressed deeper into the Lord and did not try and deal with those others in their own strength. So this is a little bit of an aside here, but when when fear or angst comes upon you in just your days, when when you get that feeling where you know that kind of your your, your heart starts to beat a little bit more, you're kind of feeling that angst, you're feeling like I'm just I'm fearing others around me or circumstances or a good diagnostic question is in your own soul, in those moments. Do you press deeper into the Lord, or do you drift further from him? 
When fear and angst come upon you, do, do those kind of form a trigger in you to press deeper into the Lord or to drift further from him? Grace Church, let it be true of us that we let our fear drive us to him and not from him. Because when we are driven to him, we will find that those things that we were fearing will not stand before the Lord. For he is the one who says, have no fear of them. Also, these offerings and these sacrifices were, verse 2, as it is written, they were done as it is written in the law of Moses. That's pretty amazing because think about this. It has been 70 years since the last time a sacrifice was offered on an altar in Jerusalem. 70 years, and yet, even the fact that they did not have the freedom to build the temple in exile, and so no sacrifices were offered there, despite the majority of the people now back in Jerusalem were not even alive when their people went into exile, they still built it according to the law of God. Someone had this written down. Someone had this remembered, and they were sure, we're not just going to build what we want to build, we're building according to the law of God. They did not take artistic freedom. They did not say, God would understand. It's been a couple of generations. They didn't just build the way they wanted to build. This is relevant for us. That first question, what are you building in life? We don't take artistic freedom. We build the way God has intended us to build. And the only way they could do that is if they were familiar with and obedient to God's word. You cannot build the way God's word has intended you to unless you are familiar with and obedient to God's word. And in the law of Moses, a burnt offering, this is what they were offering here at the outset, was made as a free will expression of total surrender and total devotion to God. First things first. Back in the land, in the midst of all the building projects and all the aspects that had to get done that were just starting to get underway, they all, as one man, surrendered themselves to the Lord. This must have especially been emotional for the man that was mentioned, Jeshua, in chapter 1. Jeshua's granddaddy was a man named Sarariah. And his grandfather was the priest at the time the original temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And Sarariah was executed by King Nebuchadnezzar on the spot. And here's Jeshua, his grandson, presiding over the flames of the altar once again. When it comes to being reestablished in the land, the people of God needed to correct the wrongs of their ancestors, the wrongs of their ancestors that did not worship God, that drove them into exile in the first place. And so first things first, a life of proper devotion and fear of the Lord. All right, let's keep going. We're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 6. But... The foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. 
Now, in the second year, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the work in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Number two, second thing we need to be thinking about in a kind of life that is glorifying to God is a life of presence. From a life of devotion to a life of presence, right? So the second half of verse 6 provided the insight into the importance of the temple in Jerusalem. That yes, they prioritized the sacrifices. Yes, they were, they were beginning to keep the festivals once again as was written in the law, indicating this total devotion. But, verse 6 says, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. Why is it so important that they build the temple? Can't they do the things God is calling them to do without the physical temple? The answer, at least for the ancient uh, for the nation of Israel back in Jerusalem, the answer was no. The temple in the Old Testament, in its most basic sense, symbolized the dwelling place of God. The temple symbolized the dwelling place of God. Functionally speaking, it would be the central place of worship and a tangible reminder of God's presence amongst his people. So when God was giving instructions to Moses way back in the day on how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, that the tent that they would take kind of with them as they're traveling in the wilderness, following the first exodus out of Egypt, he said this in Exodus 29. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then when God's people were established in the promised land after being established in the wilderness, it wouldn't be until King David made Jerusalem the capital that God would tell David that he was going to commission his son Solomon to build a permanent temple with the same purpose. The temple tells the story of a God who initiates a relationship by his grace with his people that he might dwell among them. And so now they want to get to work. And when you're building a temple, building 101, you begin with the foundation. And how they go about it, can't spend too much time here, but they give money to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon. And that mirrors the process of the original temple building project. If you were to go read 2 Kings 7, it shows that Solomon too sent for trees from Lebanon. And I think that also explains why it would not be until a year later, in the second year, in the second month that the foundation was laid, that we'll see in a moment. And while the temple was started long before it would be finished, there's going to be some interruptions along the way that we'll begin to see in the coming weeks. The priority of laying the foundation shows how desperate they were. 
It's been 70 years. There's the old saying, you don't know how much you'll miss something. You don't realize how much you'll miss someone until it's gone. God's people who were repeatedly warned about God's presence being taken from them if they did not repent and going into exile did not realize how much they missed the temple and God's presence until it was gone. And so now they are eager to build once again. But it's a, it's a tragic thing, and I don't think I'm being dramatic here. It's a tragic thing to live as the people of God without his presence. We know that all throughout the Old Testament that the, tem- the temple was a symbol of God's presence, but it was also a foreshadowing of God's personal presence. There's a prophet named Haggai who would be sent to Israel during these times once the building project got delayed, which we will see again why in the coming weeks. But Haggai comes to urge them on and say, you got to get this project going again. And Haggai writes in Haggai 2 verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And he was not primarily talking about the latter glory of this new temple, but of what was even coming beyond it. Because just as the temple was the place where heaven and earth would meet, more than 500 years later, a baby would be born, and he would be the person where heaven and earth would meet. And his name is Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in the midst of his earthly ministry, Jesus embodied the presence of God, and he would be walking through this very city that they're building in now, and he'd be walking through the temple, and he would say in John chapter 2, this temple will be destroyed, and in three days it will be raised up. And he was mocked for it, ridiculed. And then John, which he often does in his gospel, provides an editorial comment saying he was speaking about the temple of his body. And his disciples would remember that comment after he died and rose again. That Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the story of a God who initiates a relationship by his grace with his people that he may dwell among us. That's why the Apostle Paul says that since those who believe in Jesus repent of their sin, and put their faith in Jesus, that you receive the Holy Spirit in you so that our body is a temple, meaning our body has the presence of God when we believe and choose to follow Jesus. And when the people returned from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem, it would have been unheard of them to return and not build the temple. Because why would you want to be the people of God without living in the presence of God? And yet, again, it's tragic when Christians today who have the Spirit in them do not sit in and cultivate a presence of God in their life. There was a French monk in the 1600s, his name was Brother Lawrence, who coined the phrase, practicing the presence of God. It's a good phrase. Actionable steps of cultivating a practice of presence with God, an awareness and a hunger for relational presence with the living God. When it comes to the kind of life that you're building, are you practicing presence with God? 
There's a lot of means of grace to do that in prayer, in meditating on God's word, on a slow reading of scripture. No matter what you are building in your life, it is impossible to build the kind of life God has for you without practicing his presence. It's in that presence that there's a peace that passes understanding. No matter the chaos that often rages all around us. The temple was not just a building. It was a people, it was also the place where the people gathered together. And that rings familiar for us, because even as we celebrated our 75th anniversary a couple years ago, that we, we said we are grateful for this building. But this Grace Church is not this building. Grace Church is the people gathered together, living a life of presence together. And when those people gather, they worship. Which leads to the last point. Let's go back to Ezra, finish the chapter, read verses 10 to 13. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Last point, life of devotion, life of presence, and third, a life of worship. Chapter 3 builds up to a strange ending. Did you hear it? That by the end, there was a loud sound. It was a mixture of joyful shouting and mournful weeping at the ceremonial laying of the foundation of the new temple. But before we address that and why, we first see the natural reaction of God's people responding to God's grace and goodness towards them. What is the natural reaction to a heart that truly understands who God is and what God has done towards them? That when you receive that love of God and that favor of God in forgiving sin and restoring us in his presence, we cannot help but worship. It doesn't need to be commanded. It's not forced. It's not done out of obligation. It is the natural reaction of those who truly understand grace upon grace. And they sang as part of that worship a common refrain that is all throughout the Psalms. In fact, if you remember the call to worship, this phrase was all throughout it in Psalm 136. That his steadfast love endures forever. He is good. And we recognize that 2,000 years later because we still read those passages and we still sing those songs and we proclaim the goodness of God, the steadfast love of God. And the people worshiped in song when they gathered. Now, the strange ending is because you had most of the people had never seen the first temple. 
They were born in exile, and now they're back in Jerusalem for the first time, the land of their ancestors, and even just the foundation, even just this foundation of an unfinished temple was enough to make them shout for joy. They were overwhelmed at God's goodness towards them. But there were some older men who were present, and they were old enough to remember the grandeur of Solomon's temple. They were there when they saw that the temple and all of its elements was fully present. This foundation, it has no ark, it has no structure, it has no glory. They see an unfinished temple and they weep because they lament that which was lost due to the sin of their own people, perhaps even their own sin and what caused them to go to exile in the first place. And so you've got this loud sound and some are weeping and some are shouting and those few verses, that strange ending, in a way, will capture the entire book of Ezra. Ezra is a book of mixed emotions. There's this joy being back in the land and the favor of God, but it will not be a complete fulfillment of God's promises. The temple, even when it's finished, spoiler alert, will never be what it once was. And spiritually, God's people will fall short in a dramatic way before this book ends once again. Mark Dever writes in his little book, What is a Healthy Church? I'll have a quote on the screen. He says, One of the main lessons of ancient Israel is that fallen human beings left to themselves cannot image God. Even if they have all the advantages of God's law, God's land, and God's presence, how every one of us should be humbled by the story of Israel. Only God can image God. And only God can save us from sin and death. All of history, including this moment of the return from exile, the final installment of the Old Testament story, leads to Jesus. Only God can image God. And Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he has to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for, to make payment for the sins of his people. Jesus comes to offer life to the full. Jesus is the only foundational cornerstone through which we can build the kind of lives we've been created to build. Only Jesus Embrace the gift of Jesus, for in him alone is eternal life. Church, have you embraced Jesus? Meaning, have you repented of your sin, of building the kind of life you want to build, and put your faith in the one who died for you and has freed you to build the kind of life he has created you to build? This is why Paul writes, as we wrap up in Romans 12, 1 to 2, common verses you've heard before. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship is not just surrendering one day of your week. Worship is surrendering and having a surrendered life to Christ. 
We've got those two questions. What are you building in life? And the deeper one, what kind of life are you building? I hope our answers to the first question are as diverse and as different as could be. And I pray that we would seek what the Lord wants us to build, that we would discern that will in our lives, and we would pursue it with everything we have in all of our differences, in our marriages and careers and hobbies and skills, and that we would be the best entrepreneurial spirits this world has to offer. But even more, I hope our answers to the second question are the same. Lives that are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, devoted in full surrender to God, Lives that experience and practice the presence of God. And lives that are defined by God-glorifying worship that will spark revival for his name's sake. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled when we approach your word because we see simultaneously our inability to do the things that you've called us to do in our own strength. And yet, Lord, we are given confidence because you have provided what you've demanded. That you have sent your Son in your perfect likeness to pay the price for those who bear the image of your name. And so, Father, you have freed us, truly freed us, not only from a life of sin and rebellion, but you've freed us to a life of God-glorifying worship. And so, Lord, grow us in that, Lord. Even now as we sing and we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, let us think deeply on the kind of lives we are trying to build for your name's sake. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.